really to dig through this uh, theme of Romans. This really is vital. If we don't understand everything that comes out of 16 and 17, this really crystallizes the rest of the book. This is the theme of the book. And if we don't get it right here, then maybe our view as we go forward will be tilted a little or off a little. We've got to really embrace these two verses in depth. But again, these two verses, if you were going to read just two verses of Romans and try to understand what the Apostle Paul was saying, 16 and 17 is where you go. The gospel of Jesus Christ really is Paul's theme and so much more that comes around that. But Paul unfolds this. He's going to explain it in detail. As we get further and as we get deeper into this, there is nothing ahead for us but good. This is really, really good stuff that's coming up for us as we study this together. Verse number 16, let's do as we always do. Go to verse 1 and let's read up to verse number 17. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, talking about the Old Testament, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection, there's the qualifier, from the dead, by whom we have received, thank God, grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. Praise the Lord for that. For his name, among whom ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all be in Rome, beloved of our God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Incredible faith of this church here that Paul was speaking of. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that ye may be established and then we see here his humility. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come to you, but was led hitherto that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. Verse 15. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. And here's verse 16. So if you're making notes, if you take your Bible and you notate, if you, if you really, my Bible is full of notes from different seasons of life and different messages. And I love those notes. This Bible in my hands tonight is more precious to me than just about anything. I love my Bible and my notes. But if you want to take 16 and 17 and put those together in a bracket, put those together kind of in a bracket to indicate that they go together and then write out the word theme. This is the meat. This is the point. 
take these two verses with you as we go through the rest of this study. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Heavenly Father, for a few minutes, God, we're coming back into your word, Lord, to study and to explore what you would have for us. God, I pray that tonight you would focus our minds, focus our hearts on the word of God. Lord, I pray that you would bind distraction. Lord, give us the clarity of mind, the strength in body, and Lord, the words to preach what you would have us preach tonight. God, I pray for our children tonight that are in the lower level of the student center. God, for the teenagers that are upstairs. Lord, for Pastor Nathan, Pastor Will, for Brother John, Miss Ashley, all the volunteers. God, the folks that are making it happen. Lord, I pray that you would be with them, sustain them. Lord, we love you tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I will make mention before we begin any further reading and study. Uh, pray for Miranda. She... Uh, came back to campus after lunch and there was a very angry hornet friend and friends that uh, attacked her and she got stung about nine times on her back and uh, she, God love her, thank God she was not allergic, uh, but she's at home taking Benadryl and ibuprofen and ice packs, so uh, just pray for her, uh, but that was a mean, mean hornet and uh, I think she gave him the dispatch straight into eternity. He is now in hornet hell. He's gone. Uh, but I will say this, Brother Jerry Payne prophesied that this would happen. Miranda had on a floral dress today. She looked beautiful. I noticed multiple times. And Brother Jerry, she sat down next to Brother Jerry and Brother Jerry said, well, Miranda, you look like a pretty flower. You're gonna get stung today. So if Brother Jerry looks at you and says, you're going to get stung, get ready. <laughs> you're going to get stung. But uh, she's probably watching right now going, I'm going to kill him. But just pray for her. No doubt it was very painful, but I thank the Lord that she wasn't allergic uh, because she would be probably in the hospital tonight. But praise the Lord for keeping her, and uh, I thank you for praying. All right, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Let's embrace this yet again, and then we'll move on. Because if I'm not careful, I am not ashamed. We'll take yet again an entire sermon, and I don't need to do that. There is multiple, multiple ways we can keep tearing that apart. Who's ever had garlic knots? Okay, garlic knots are like layers of delicious baked bread and garlic oil and all that comes with it, olive oil. This verse is like a garlic knot. And those just few words, I am not ashamed, is a big bunch of delicious garlic knots. They just keep coming apart. It, it, honestly, there's so much here, but I don't want to get bogged down. I want to move on together and really embrace this. But take this with you. I am not ashamed. We talked about in detail what it meant for the Apostle Paul to say that and for the Holy Spirit of God to allow him to have it written in this letter because we know that this is true. The Bible is inerrant, it is infallible, it's holy, and it's inspired. So if it's inerrant, infallible, holy, and inspired, 
that is the truth from his heart. In other words, the fact that it's there in statement form means that the Holy Ghost of God allowed it to be written in statement form. In other words, he's saying, I really am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. doesn't mean he doesn't have tough days. It doesn't mean he has days where he doubts and he struggles. But he's saying with all confidence and all authority, I am not ashamed. We went back through a lot of the verses in Acts, but Paul had been imprisoned in Philippi. Okay, that's Acts 16. Chased out of Thessalonica, that's Acts 17. Smuggled out of Berea, that's Acts 17, 14. Laughed at, mocked in Athens, that's Acts 17, 32. Regarded as a fool in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1, 18. And stoned in Galatia, Acts 14. But yet he remained eager to preach the gospel in Rome, to continue his journey, continue what God had put in his heart. And we've talked about this already in detail. But part of the reason Paul wants to get to Rome in the first place is that he wants to leave Rome, get some strength, get some, some honey for the journey, if you will, and get what he needs to be able to go to Spain. He wants to keep going. So not only is he saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, but he's saying, not only am I not ashamed, but I want to keep going for the gospel. Now that's an incredible testimony right there. And we talked about this verse in 1 Corinthians 1. It says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. The Apostle Paul is reminding the reader that there will be people, there will be foolish people, who see what you believe and what you preach and what you teach about the cross of Jesus Christ, that they'll see it as foolishness. For the Romans, in all of their ways and the way they worshipped and all the different gods that they had, for the Romans to be reduced to believe in one monotheistic God, for them to be reduced to the fact that this God would send his son, that he would be three in one and that the son would come and die and pay for the sin, that was not embraced well by the Romans. These were filthy, dirty people. They were spiritually broken. And he's saying to these Christians, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish the world foolishness. Now, here let's get to the root of what we want to get to tonight, and it's these key words that are in 16, and Lord willing, one that's in 17. But if you're making notes and you're going to highlight in your Bible, I want you to highlight the word power. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. There's a colon there, you'll notice that. Miss Margaret would have me notice that, that there is a colon there. And then comes the statement, for it is the power of God unto salvation for it is the power of God unto salvation Paul has already told them I want to come to Rome I want to see fruit I want to see people saved I want to see new converts I want to see people added to the church but a key word here in our theme and our thesis for Romans is that this all revolves the axis of every bit of this beautiful doctrine, this rich text, is the power of God. It is the power of God. It's the power of God unto salvation. In other words, it's not up to the Apostle Paul to do the saving. 
It's not up to a denomination to do the saving. He is making it clear, he is making it declarative that if someone is going to be saved, then it will be because they had an encounter with the power of God. And in the power of God, even 2,000 plus years ago, the power of God means that not only is it God's power unto salvation, but what does the power of God bring with it along the journey? It brings God's ability that God can save anybody, anywhere, anytime. The Apostle Paul is one great example on his way to harm the Christians, on his way to arrest Christians, on his way to kill Christians. Yet on the road to Damascus with letters in hand, Jesus Christ comes by and miraculously calls him out of the darkness and he comes from death unto life. If there's anybody that knows what the power of God is, it's this man. And Paul knew it was not himself that saved him on the Damascus road. Paul knew it had nothing to do with his ability to pull himself out of the darkness, out of the lie, out of the false religion in which he was living in. It was God's power, it was God's ability, and look out, it was God's great pleasure. God did it as it pleased him for his will. God saved Paul for a purpose. He had a reason to save Paul, and he set it all up. So God's power, God's ability, God's pleasure, and God's timing. God's power will always be met with God's timing. When the power of God comes, it'll be in God's timing. There's nothing I can do as a pastor to flip a switch and make or persuade the Holy Spirit of God do what I want him to do. I know what I want him to do. I know what I'm asking him to do, but it's up to God in his timing to do the work. That's why it's called the office work of the Holy Spirit of God and not the office work of the Holy Spirit of God as predetermined by Pastor Winston Parrish. It's God's work and it's God's power unto salvation. I cannot, listen, I cannot force anyone to see Christ for who he is. I can preach it, I can teach it, I can live it, but until they see Christ for themselves, until the light comes on, as 2 Corinthians says, for the light of the glorious gospel, when that hits their eye and their heart and they know that they're a savior and that there is for them an opportunity to respond to the calling of the Holy Spirit of God. I cannot create that circumstance. It's not my job to convict. It's not my job to persuade. My job is to stand and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the power of God will do the persuading the power of God will do the convincing. The power of God will do the surgical removal of scales from broken eyes that are dead and on their way to hell. I can't do it, but it is the power of God that will do it. Now, this is where we can say, praise God, hallelujah, glory to his name. Jason, what happened to you last week? You got saved on Sunday morning. Praise God. Guess who did that? 
God himself did that. I didn't do it. The Baptist denomination didn't do it. Pastor Ralph Sexton didn't do it. It didn't happen because you X, Y, and Z. It's because the power of God came by your way, convicted you, showed you that you were a sinner. And before you even got to this altar, I saw all over your face the power of God changing your life. Praise God for the power of God. I could have done nothing for you, but God did it. Brother Mark, when you get on that plane Tuesday and you go to Malawi, no doubt it will be the power of God that keeps you safe, that allows you the opportunities to preach, that allows you the opportunities to see people saved. It'll be the power of God working. We just have to be faithful to be vessels. Then the work of God will happen in his perfect power, his perfect timing, and with all the ability that's needed. It's just my job to be faithful, to continue to be what God wants me to be. The Apostle Paul said, is the power of God unto salvation. I remember, I remember, I remember like it was yesterday what it was to be sitting in that Wednesday night service next door in the old building, 15 years old, and the power of God the convicting power of the Holy Spirit come by my way and show me personally that it didn't matter who your grandfather was, it didn't matter who your mama was, your daddy was, all that mattered is that you had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And at that point, I knew, I knew I needed a Savior and that without Him, I was destined for an eternity in hell. That is the power of God. I love Pastor Nathan's testimony. Saved at five years old at home. Is that correct, five? Comes to mom and dad. I think, mom, you prayed with him, right? He comes to his parents at five years old, weeping, sobbing. That's the power of God. Only God can take a five-year-old heart and say, hey, I've got a purpose for this child's life. I'm going to protect him early and save him early and call him out of death and bring him to life early because I've got a purpose for him. He's gonna have to preach to a bunch of teenagers all over America. Praise God for the power of God. Praise God. It's not up to me. It's up to the power of God. Now, he uses this word salvation. It's used five times in Romans. We're gonna see this word five times along the journey. The verb occurs eight times, eight times. And this key word is boiled down to this, deliverance, rescue. The power of the gospel delivers people. The power of the gospel rescues people. But what is it rescuing them from? What is it bringing them out of? What is it delivering them from? Matthew 18, 11 tells us that it delivers, it rescues people from lostness. It rescues people from the wrath of God. The wrath of God. When I got saved, not only did I get saved, but I got justified. My justification happened the moment I accepted Christ, the moment I believed, the moment I turned, I repented of, of my sins and asked Christ to save me. That moment of justification 
that my debts had been paid. My court case that was hopeless. It was a unanimous decision. The documents had already been submitted, guilty as charged. And then something happened that was outside of me that happened within the power of God. I got saved. I got delivered. I got rescued. And there was nothing that I could do. There was nothing a family member could do. It was the power of God unto salvation. I was delivered and I was rescued. I will never, ever, Brother Danny, I'll never, ever know what hell is. I'll never know. Think of that. I'll never know what it is, Debbie, to be separated from God for one day. While I'm on this earth, I have the indwellment of the Holy Spirit and my personal walk with Him. When I die instantly to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I will never know what it is to be separated from God. I'll never have to go into an eternity in hell and experience all that's there. And when you got saved, you got rescued, you got delivered, you got separated from the wrath of God. And the question is, well, where did the wrath of God go? Go back to the crucifixion of your Christ and there you will find the wrath of God. It was poured out upon Jesus. It didn't just go away. Somebody had to pay. Some sacrifice had to be given. And it's the power of God unto salvation. And it was my justification in Christ as he embraced the wrath of God. Not only does it deliver me from lostness, the wrath of God, but being saved will rescue you from willful spiritual ignorance. Willful spiritual ignorance. It's the people that know that there's a God. They know in the depths of their heart that something on the inside of them is missing. I used to pick these people up all the time. When I worked EMS, my brother back here in the back knows the brokenness that you see in the 911 system. And you'd get somebody on a stretcher and they're on their way to the emergency room after their second or third overdose in as many days. And they've kept hitting the same drug and it keeps sending them in the same pit of near death. You give them the Narcan, you give them the medication, you watch their heart, you pray they haven't had a stroke or a heart attack during the time that they were out. They're coming back to you, you're doing a neurological assessment, squeeze my hands, look at me, smile, and you're thinking, I wonder what's missing in this person's life. And as they come to, about five minutes before we get to mission, every time, the tears would start. The brokenness would come out. And many, many times, those people who were on the edge of humanity who are on the edge of existence, who are this close to openly admitting that they would rather be dead than be alive, it would come out. I've got to have some help. I know that there's hope somewhere. I just can't seem to find it. They know on the inside, in the deepest parts of their heart, that there is a different lifestyle for them. They know that there is a deity somewhere. They're saying it out loud and they don't even realize what they're saying. And it's evil, evil, willful, spiritual ignorance. And when you get saved, when you get delivered, when you get rescued, and that new man comes alive, 
the old things pass away and the new man gets good and running and healthy and he's, he's going for gold, the indulgence will change. The desires will become not of your own accord. And all of a sudden, what used to be black letters on white pages out of God's word, somehow now it's the most satisfying thing you can get. It's a wonderful thing when that spiritual ignorance turns into a spiritual walk. It's like I told the graduates this morning. You can hear truth, you can receive light, but you can't apologize for hearing it. There's a lot of people who are living in this life, in this world, broken, and they know the truth. A lot of them went to Sunday school. A lot of them grew up in church, and they've heard the truth. And some of this willful spiritual ignorance, I'm afraid that a lot of people are going to get to eternity, and they're going to think, well, if I just kind of pretend like I didn't know, it'll be okay. God knows what you know. He knows what's on the inside of your heart. He knows what's on the inside of your mind. He knows that that message that you heard on accident on Facebook or on YouTube or flipping through Facebook tonight or Instagram tonight or wherever you're getting to our website from, wherever it's from, once you've heard the truth, you can't unhear it. And and I'm worried about this generation and its willful participation in what is supposed ignorance. Well, I didn't know. Yeah, you did. Your mom and dad have been living it in front of you all your life. Your preacher's been faithful for 30 plus years. Don't say you don't know. It's willful spiritual ignorance. And when we get saved, that all changes. Now it becomes radical ownership. You see, I can't live your life for you, Braden. It's like I said today. I can't make you do anything. I can love you, I can pray for you, I can support you, but at the end of the day, you got to be your own man. God will give you exactly what you need in that. And he'll give you friends to support you and love you, but I can't make you. The truth is all of us have that responsibility. And if you're living your life in some sort of blissful, willful ignorance to the word of God, like I know that it's there, but I'm going to keep my distance because if I hear more... I have to be accountable to it. Listen, that may sound crazy, but it's, a, it's the way a lot of people live their lives. And Paul said being saved, being delivered, being rescued, it'll pull you away from that and push you towards God. It'll save you, it'll rescue you from evil self-indulgence. And praise God, it will pull you out of the darkness of false religion. The apostle Paul knew exactly what that was got to remember this man that we're talking about he's double educated he's smart as a whip a lot of scholars believe his IQ was well above 140 145 this is a genius man multiple languages a scholar of scholars and he had the clout and he had the authority within the Sanhedrin and with the Pharisaical council to be able to walk in and get what he wanted. And before Christ, he wanted to imprison, harm, and kill Christians. He was able to go into the office of the high priest and get exactly that. Letters to go to Damascus. 
This is a brilliant man we're dealing with here. But Paul had seen Jesus on the Damascus road and immediately the Bible says he goes to Ananias' house. Ananias is prepared to receive him. He's blind for a few days and then as soon as he gets his strength back, he has some food and he has drink there at Ananias' house and then the Bible says and straightway Paul preached Christ. And praise the Lord when the lights come on and you get in Buddy, it'll pull you out of the foolishness that you've been in maybe for all your life. Brother Mark, I'm so jealous sometimes of where you get to go and what you get to do. I love that work. But to see a Muslim who 15 minutes ago would have told you that Muhammad was the one true God, that Allah was the way to heaven, and then for you to take the gospel message of Jesus Christ and either via English or a tra translator, share the gospel with him, the light come on him, see Christ, repent of his sin, that he's gloriously saved right then and there. Praise God for that, that it delivers people from even false religion. That is the power of God. That's why you have young people that get saved in the Muslim world and they have to flee. If they have the resources, they have to flee because their families want to have them executed, murdered. But something happened on the inside and now suddenly Jesus is worth maybe even my execution by my own family. That is the power of God. Praise the Lord. There's a term here that I made a note of and I want to address it. And I very carefully want to go here, but it has to do with salvation. And it's a phrase that I've heard a lot, but the more I hear it, the more it grieves me. We are no doubt to love people who are not saved. Would everybody agree with that statement? Praise the Lord for that. That's who we are. We're to love them right where they are. I don't care who they are. I don't care what side of town they're from. I don't care their background. I don't care what religion they have claimed for years. It doesn't matter to me. We are to be Christ-like to them. We may be the only hope that they have to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as it has to do with this rescue, and as it pertains to this salvation, this deliverance, I hear this term a lot. God loves the sinner and hates the sin. And it may be an easy way to explain some things and on the surface maybe it's just enough truth to be right. But as students of the Word of God, I think we need to dive deeper than what that statement says on the surface. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Praise the Lord. And at the end of the day, the sinners, the sin, that's the separator. Sin is what keeps people from seeing God in eternity. Unforgiven sin is not permitted in heaven. Sinners saved by grace can be permitted because of the grace of God, the justification, the sanctification, and then one day, praise God, as Brother Roy would say, the glorification that will happen in heaven. But we need to 
be very cautious with that statement that God loves the sinner and hates the sin. Because the truth is, God does not send the sin to hell. God sends the sinner to hell. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. When we desensitize our entire population from what it means to be separated from God, when we mock and we make a joke of eternity in our open daily conversation as a society, and we desensitize ourselves to the, not only the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, but the wrath of God poured out on sinners, people lose sight of who God really is. You see, when I got saved, I was bound that night. If I, I knew that I needed to be saved. I knew I did. But if I would have rejected Christ that night, left, and then that next Thursday morning gone out into eternity, I would have gone into an eternity without Christ. And if that would have been the sad story, even at 15 years old, knowing what I knew, the truth that I had received, the accountability between me and a holy God, I would be in hell tonight. And that should disturb us and alarm us that anyone in our family or anyone in our group, our acquaintances, our friends, wouldn't have a personal relationship with Jesus. And it would be even more sad for us to get into eternity and find out that your friend heard you say or heard me say that, well, God loves you. He just doesn't like your sin. That, that feels like an easy way out of the equation. God loves you enough that he sent his son Jesus that you there is a solution for you. But if you do not turn from your wickedness and repent and go towards Christ, you will spend an eternity in hell. That's the bottom line. Now, that's not an easy thing to digest just openly. We're talking about someone spending eternity in hell. How horrendous that is. It should make us weep and mourn. That was why we used to see great moves of revivals, because the church never lost its burden. It never lost its tears. It never lost the impactfulness of people in their lives that we're on their way to an eternity with hell. But if we desensitize ourselves from that enough, then we can separate ourselves from that truth. Salvation is a very serious thing. It's why it gives us a reason, buddy, to wake up every morning and say, God, thank you, thank you, thank you for my deliverance, for my rescue, and for my salvation. Because the truth is, he could have left you right where you were and still be God and still be just as holy and just as righteous and just as good and just as merciful, but in great mercy and in great grace, he came by your way and saved you. Thank God for the power of God unto salvation. The power is a key word. If you're highlighting, if you're underlining, the power is a key word. Salvation is a key word. The last that we'll probably get to, maybe we'll get to one more, Lord willing, 
believeth. Believeth. The power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And salvation is what it is, and believeth is how it happens. The power of God when someone believes. What this means here is to put your trust in Christ. That you would rely on Christ. That you would have faith in Christ. And know this, true saving faith, real salvation that causes someone to believe, that ignites the faith journey in someone's life, that saving faith is a supernatural work of God. You see, the Baptist church, we used to really, really go back in our history and we really used to embrace the supernatural of God, the supernatural workings of God, the things that cannot be explained. And if you go back and study even revivals in Europe that happened in the 1800s, there are supernatural workings of God that cannot be explained. And what we've lost touch with is not only the character of who our God is, but the fact that our God works in a supernatural way. If you have faith tonight, that faith was given to you supernaturally by God. If you're here tonight and you believe and you have faith and you've walked through journeys of doubt and depression and you've been in desert places and you've come out of that and you're still in the faith, not that you can lose your salvation, hear me well, but that you're still in fellowship with God, that you can be like Paul and say, for I'm not ashamed, even though they just stoned me in Galatia. Once you're saved, you can never lose that salvation. I'm talking about the fellowship of God, that you're in the faith, as we'll learn here in a minute, going from faith to faith, the daily walk. And it's supernatural. For someone to go through a cancer treatment and to come out with a hand raised saying, I trust God, I rely on Him, and I have faith in Him, even though it, I may die next week, that is a supernatural faith that only can be given by God. It doesn't come from a self-help book. It doesn't come from sitting in a blue chair. It's a supernatural working of God. We've got to realize who it is that saved us, that called us out of death, and brought us into light. Praise the Lord, it's supernatural. But this word believeth, the true saving faith that is tied to it. Let me give you three things here. Saving faith consists of three elements. And this is just almost a logistical map, if you will. We'll never be able to put the supernatural workings of God and understand them all in paper. All we have is scripture and our personal experience in the faith. But saving faith consists of three elements. The first is mental. Mental. The mind understands the gospel and the truth about Christ. Your mind has to come out of where it is, which is in the darkness. Remember, I love 2 Corinthians and how the Apostle Paul wrote that letter. He talked about the blind minds. Blind minds. Well, eyes don't live in the brain, but the brain has eyes. 
It's spiritual eyes, the blind minds. And for you to have true saving faith, your mind has to begin to wrap its head around the fact that you're a sinner, that Christ is who he said he was, and that you need him desperately. It's what allows you to understand. But understand this, you did not do that in your own power. It was a supernatural working of God that allowed your mind to see it. Again, we begin to really take ourselves out of this process and begin to understand that it is the Holy Ghost of God, the supernatural working of God. Number one, it's mental. Number two, it is emotional. One embraces the truthfulness of those facts. And then if you're under conviction, like I was at 15, and I saw who I was, a sinner who needed to be saved, and boy, howdy, I was sorry. Oh, I was so sorry. I love how when young people get saved, if you notice a young person who's truly broken that God's dealing with, if you'll notice... Nine times out of ten, God will break that child's heart and it'll be over one particular sin. It'll be over one particular sin. I lied. I lied to my mom and I lied to my daddy. I'm a liar. Yes, you are. And God's showing you what you are. You pay attention. Next time you're around the opportunity, if you have the chance to hear a child's prayer, if you're an altar worker especially, pay, pay attention to that. The Holy Ghost of God has to get a hold of their mind and their little heart, their emotions, and show them, I'm a sinner. There's a holy God. And somewhere along the line, they'll embrace what they are. I need to be saved. That's why Pastor Nathan at five years old could go to his mom broken and sobbing. Why would a five-year-old go over something spiritual? Because the supernatural working of God got a hold of his little mind and his little heart and showed him that he was a sinner. At five years old, the supernatural working of God, saving faith. It's mental, it's emotional. There's the sorrow over the sin, and then there comes the great joy. Jason, I love the way you got saved on Sunday. Because as soon as you got up, you looked like a different man, a different face. The conversation we just had in my office, praise God for what he did. But then comes the joy You realize that you're a sinner. You realize that there's an eternity. You realize that hell is real. And then you realize that you don't have to go. And from there comes the great joy. You have joy in your heart over God's grace and his mercy that he gives you. Then the last is volitional. It's mental, it's emotional, and lastly, it's volitional. The sinner submits himself to the will of Christ. This is where Christ becomes supreme in someone's life. I love it when someone gets saved and something happens in them and they know that what they were doing in their life, especially if they're an adult and they've got an addiction or they've got a a sin problem that's gripped them for years, it's almost like a dead set panic. I've got to change this. That is another way of saying Christ is Lord of my life and I want him to be pleased with how I live my life. And part of that saving faith, Jesus preached it so clearly, there will be fruit 
doesn't mean there's not inconsistencies. It doesn't mean that there are bad days. It doesn't mean that there's perfection. There's no one that reaches sinless perfection. But you'll never convince me, you'll never show me anywhere in New Testament doctrine that if someone has been saved, that there will not be some sort of change in that person's life. The old man is dead. The new man's alive. Something will happen. It doesn't mean that things aren't different for different people. Doesn't mean that someone gets saved and they've been an alcoholic for 15 years that they're going to wake up tomorrow and all of a sudden not be an alcoholic. Let's be real. But they'll want to change. I don't want to be that way anymore. It's not a very detailed way to put all of that together, but it's a volitional submission. We trust Christ and trust Christ alone for salvation. With all of my heart, I believe that genuine faith will produce eventually authentic obedience. Authentic obedience to Christ. I got saved at 15. This is my own testimony. I got saved at 15. And by 16 and a half, almost 17, I allowed the inner workings of ministry and church and growing up as a missionary's kid, a pastor's kid, a pastor's grandkid, I allowed things to come in between me and my relationship with the Lord. And at the end of the day, all it was was an excuse. That was an excuse. I didn't want to be held accountable. I was 17 years old, getting ready to be 17 years old. And what you do in your youth and in your rebellious nature that you're still living with. Yes, you're saved. You're on your way to heaven. But you still wake up as a 16-year-old and a 17-year-old attached to flesh. And at that age, it's poisonous. It's venomous. The younger the snake, the more potent the venom. Why do you want to put your hands on your teenager sometimes and watch the life leave their little bodies? Don't act like you haven't. It's because there's a war raging on the inside of them. And I love it when young people get saved. But I always tell moms and dads, don't be surprised if there's some bumpy days along life's journey. But you know what I realized? For 10 years, 10 years, I made every excuse that I could. I stayed away from this church. I didn't want to come on campus. I didn't want to come on property. I didn't want to have anything to do with the things of God. But then when I got to a place of lowest sort, in a place of the greatest despair of my adult life, my first person to turn to wasn't my granddaddy. It wasn't to my dad wasn't to a boss or a coworker or a friend. At that point in time, for the first time in almost a decade, I cried out to my father. And as a prodigal son, that night, I got to come home. And I know this, that if that night I had not chosen to come home, to sit at the father's table and to get about the father's business, I wouldn't be standing here tonight. More than likely, I believe with all my heart, I would be in eternity, home safe in heaven, but not here. 
I believe with all my heart that what God had put in my heart and where my life was at an intersection, that if I was going to continue to be a stumbling block, that God wasn't going to allow me to live another day. But at the end of the day, the same supernatural working power of the Holy Ghost that saved me in that building next door was the same supernatural Holy Ghost of God that flooded the back of that ambulance on Hendersonville Road and said, Winston, this is it. You cannot put all of that into a blender and understand all of it together. You've got to take this apart layer by layer and understand the supernatural workings of God. And eventually... What God had called me to do at 16 years old, called me to preach, eventually God got genuine obedience out of me because I belong to him. This last one and then we'll close. This last key word that we'll do tonight. I just want to remind you as the Apostle Paul did. He said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first. To the Jew first. Be reminded that you got grafted in. God could have set this whole thing up and left the Gentiles like Winston out of the picture. Go to Exodus really quick. Turn to chapter 19. We'll go into verse number 6. Exodus 19, 6. Say amen when you're there. What the Apostle Paul is highlighting in this letter is what you find here in Exodus chapter 19. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. God chose Israel to be his witness nation. God gave Israel distinct privileges. And Christ's ministry was first to Israel. And it was through Israel that salvation was to come to the world. The Jews were first. Go to Genesis chapter number 12. Go to the first verse. There's Moses and what God told him. Now let's go all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee and I will make of thee great nation and I will bless thee and I will make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing and I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curses thee and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God chose Israel first with special privileges 
and a special designation. And you'll find out, if you read through Acts and you did that study, you've already seen how the Apostle Paul feels about his brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh. There's some strong, strong language that shows that the Apostle Paul was so burdened over the Jews that he was willing to be anathema, accursed from Christ. That means that the Apostle Paul, and he qualifies that entire statement by saying, the Holy Ghost of God bearing in me the witness that what I'm speaking is the truth. Paul was saying, I would go to hell for the Jew. If my Jewish brothers and my Jewish sisters could see Christ, I would be accursed from Christ for their sake. That's love. And Paul had a burning, burning, burning desire to go and to preach to the Jews. He wanted to see them saved, but God set him aside for a purpose. And that primary purpose for Paul was not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. What an incredible letter this is. We're just getting started. We'll finish up the last few words of 16 and go into 17 Next time we're together, no doubt that will be, Lord willing, on Wednesday night. We'll try our best to dig back into this as we study Romans together. If you miss any of these sermons, go back, follow up with them, so that way you don't come in like a deer in the headlights. Enjoy this time. Get the most of it as you can. Remember now, our sermons, everything that's preached here from this pulpit, is on our podcast. So if you have Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, iHeartRadio Just search for Trinity Baptist Asheville or for my name and you'll find it. And so if you drive to work or if you are able to put an earphone in at your desk and listen, you can get caught up on all of Romans from a podcast. Another great way is YouTube. If you have YouTube, uh, you can go and play fast forward if you want to listen to the whole service or fast forward to the message. And if you have YouTube premium, if you pay for the premium service on YouTube, you can turn your phone basically off, turn your screen off, not play any video, but just listen to the audio. It's one of my favorite features of YouTube. So uh, be fed, be in the Word, and be ready to study again, Lord willing, on Wednesday night. Good night. God bless you. Let's be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your Word. We thank you for our time together. God, thank you for today, for moving in our midst, for the incredible day that we experienced Lord, we yet again give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor, all the recognition for what's done. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Pastor Rory, where did I lose you? Do you have to go in the back? Okay. Pastor Allen, anything from you, sir? The cards for Miss Phyllis Newby are in the lobby. Please make sure that you fill out a card for Miss Phyllis. Brother Doug? All hearts and minds clear? All right. Deacon David? All good? Amen. Pastor, it's good to see you here tonight. Pastor Drew Rogers, glad you're here tonight. You and Miss Bethany. We're glad to have you. We're a lot more glad to have Miss Bethany. But uh, we're glad that y'all are home tonight. We love you. Proud of what God's doing down there in South Kakalaki. But we're glad that you're home tonight. Enjoy your week. Be safe. See you Wednesday night, Lord willing.